civilians in Gaza getting caught in the crossfire after the Hamas terror attack. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel to address the problem. Find out how Israel's president responds to this sensitive issue. Is Russia delivering weapons to Hezbollah? A report account, uh, accuses the Wagner Group of supporting the terrorist group. What Russia is saying about this. Is the U.S. labor market showing signs of a slowdown? NTD's business correspondent breaks down today's employment numbers. Fighting drug overdoses, how a mother found a greater purpose in her daughter's diary, and her advice for parents about how kids are being targeted. A real-life Terminator scenario. Elon Musk speaks on the dangers of AI robots. He has a simple idea to make sure we don't end up in a dystopian movie scenario. Hello and welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. And I'm Stephanie Cox. We have insights and perspectives on the stories shaping our world. Breaking news, in-depth analysis, and inspiration to power your day. Now for our top stories. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel. He met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog today. The two spoke about Israel's right to defend itself and protecting Palestinian civilians. Take a look. Israel has not only the, the right but the obligation to defend itself and to do everything possible to make sure that this October 7th can never happen again. Um, and at the same time, as you've just uh, made clear, uh, how Israel does this matters and it is very important that when it comes to the protection of civilians who are caught in a crossfire of Hamas's making, that everything be done to uh, protect them. This is a leaflet which we are sending by over 1,200,000 leaflets to the citizens of Gaza. We've carried out 6 million text messages and 4 million phone calls to the citizens of Gaza according to the rules of international law, where we alerted the citizens in advance, including before the Jabalia attack. Israeli officials repeatedly said that Hamas is hiding in tunnels below areas where Palestinian civilians are located, such as hospitals or refugee camps. Before the meeting with Herzog, Blinken addressed the Israeli Senate. He's also expected to discuss allowing humanitarian aid into Gaza with Israeli officials. Blinken is set to visit more countries in the region after Israel. Just recently, he went to six Arab countries. An update about the situation on the ground. UN agencies and hospitals say they are running out of fuel. The IDF released a rec recorded phone conversation from a source in the Hamas-controlled Gaza healthcare system today. The official says Hamas takes any fuel brought to Shifa Hospital. They also talk about how there are over a million liters of fuel stored underground. Over 100 trucks of aid crossed into Gaza yesterday. That's the most in one day since the war started. The IDF says it is facilitating the, en the entry of water, food, medicine and medical equipment for Gazan civilians. The IDF says over 8,000 rockets have been fired at Israel since the October 7th terrorist attacks and that 242 hostages, including 30 children, are still inside the Gaza Strip. Is Russia sending weapons to Hezbollah? A 
new report says the Russian mercenary group Wagner is set to send an advanced air defense missile system to the terrorist group. This comes as Hezbollah today addressed the public for the first time since the war started. The leader of Hezbollah addressed the public just a few minutes ago in Lebanon. He praised the Hamas attacks on Israel, calling them a blessed operation. He also said Hezbollah wasn't part of the October 7th attacks, saying they were 100% planned and executed by Hamas. The Hezbollah leaders didn't comment on speculation that Hezbollah might enter the war with Israel in full force. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. is monitoring a weapons transfer between the Wagner group of Hezbollah and Hezbollah. Wagner is reportedly planning to send a weapon system that uses anti-aircraft missiles to combat airstrikes. The Kremlin today dismissed the report, calling it unfounded. Russian officials also said the Wagner group doesn't exist and that the U.S. should directly contact Russia if there are any concerns. And the White House asked, was asked yesterday about Hezbollah's potentially entering the war full force. Obviously, we're concerned about, about uh, continued attacks on Israeli forces there uh, in the north, as are the Israelis. Um, uh, but I don't believe we've seen any indication yet specifically that Hezbollah is, is uh, ready to go in full force. This comes as Hezbollah keeps attacking Israel's northern border region. Just last night, the terrorist group launched its biggest attack yet in the current war. The group says it launched 19 simultaneous strikes on Israeli army positions. It also reportedly used explosive drones for the first time. The governors of Texas and Oklahoma visited a hospital in Tel Aviv yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt made the trip to visit survivors of the October 7th Hamas attack. The governors heard survivors' accounts of the attack and emphasized that the terrorist group needs to be eliminated for peace to prevail in the region. You have to be able to live in peace and not let these guys come at you. So I'm just thinking if they, if 3,000 people would have come to Oklahoma or come to Texas, we'd be on a warpath right now. So, um, and the fact that the world doesn't understand what's happening, that's where we're here to try to come back and carry that message back to the U.S. And they're not terrorists with guns and a pickup truck anymore. These, these, these folks are, are, are trained and there was 3,000. This is very coordinated. Hamas needs to be eliminated, obviously from Israel, but also from Gaza. Uh, but from the earth, yeah. Hamas needs to yeah. be eliminated. FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty. A New York jury convicted the 31-year-old on all seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. It comes in relation to his role in a scheme that cheated customers and investors out of billions of dollars. NTD's Kostemines has the details on the trial. Sam Bankman-Fried's conviction on Thursday was led by Manhattan's top federal prosecutor, Damian Williams. Bankman-Fried was found guilty on all counts, including fraud, money laundering and other charges. The cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players like Sam Bankman-Fried might be new. This kind of fraud, this kind of corruption is as old as time, and we have no patience for it. It's a warning, this case, to every single fraudster out there who thinks that they're untouchable, that their crimes are too complex for us to catch, or that they're too powerful for us to prosecute, or that they could try to talk their way out of it when they get caught. Those folks should think again and cut it out.
The verdict marks a significant victory for a broader crackdown on white-collar crime. Bankman Fried had pleaded not guilty to all seven counts. He attempted this week to convince jurors that while he had made mistakes and may have been in over his head attempting to run the cryptocurrency exchange, he did not knowingly defraud investors and placed the blame on his former colleagues, arguing that they were the ones who acted fraudulently and without his awareness. But under cross-examination from prosecutors, he often spoke evasively and struggled to remember many events. The trial featured the testimony of Bankman Fried's former partners and employees, including former Alameda CEO Karen Ellison, former FTX Chief Technology Officer Gary Wang, and former FTX Director of Engineering Nishat Singh. All of the above had already pleaded guilty to fraud charges. Close to $10 billion of customers' and investors' money went missing in the 2022 collapse of the crypto exchange and its affiliated hedge fund Alameda Research. Not mentioned in the trial were the more than $100 million of FTX money that Bankman Fried donated to politicians prior to FTX's collapse, which included more than $5 million to President Biden's 2020 election campaign. Bankman Fried now faces decades in prison. The sentencing is set for March 28, 2024. His defense attorneys are expected to appeal the verdict. Cost MNS, NTD News. Is Bankman Fried's case tale as old as time, or is it unique to crypto? And what does it mean for the industry going forward? Let's hear what the former chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget has to say about the outcome of this mega fraud trial. Vance Skin, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back on the show. After yesterday's verdict was announced, Damian Williams, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, said the cryptocurrency industry might be new. The players, might, like Sam Bankman-Fried, might be new. But this kind of corruption is as old as time. In your mind, was fraud of this nature and scope only able to take place because of cryptocurrency and its vulnerabilities? Or can fraud like this take place regardless of the currency used? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today. And, um, you know, this is an unfortunate situation. They've found that he was guilty um, from the fraud and other things that were going on over there at FTX Exchange. And I think it has put some um, question marks about cryptocurrency, what this means for the future of it, and how it could be a competitive currency with the dollar and other things, given what's happened with our national debt and everything else. I think people are interested in that. Um, but I, I don't see this as being a long-term problem for cryptocurrency. This was really an issue dealing with Sam Bankman freed. It wasn't something to do with cryptocurrency itself. And as that quote you mentioned said, this is as long as history has been around. I mean, there's always been some sort of fraud that's unfortunately going on. And so I think this is a broader thing that says, hey, look, if you're going to commit fraud and you're going to you know, do something illegal, um, you're going to go to jail. This is how things should work, whether it's with crypto, whether it's with the dollar or the banking sector or something else. And so I don't think that this is going to be a long-term hit, although it could provide some uncertainty for people about crypto cryptocurrency in the short run. And how do other fraud cases compare to this one? Well, I think whenever you look at fraud cases, um, whenever you have these sort of uh, wire exchanges, whenever you're using money to uh, grow your own wealth um, that otherwise shouldn't be happening with, with the other people's money in the process, you know, we see this happen with others ac across time. And so I think this is going to be an interesting period to figure out what happens next. 
What, how will they go after folks um, and make sure that things are done the right way? I think we want people to act legally within the exchanges. That's what the marketplace is all about in a, in a rule of capitalism is you're still going to have rules in place that people play by the same game, rules of the game. And that's not what happened in this situation. And so I hope that this will be a lesson for people to say, you know what, we're not going to allow for this to happen. And let's make sure we're doing it the right way so we won't have this uncertainty happen. Vance, the FTX collapse eviscerated over $150 billion in crypto assets. How will this affect investor confidence in digital currencies going forward? Well, you know, I, I think this is a something that's going to give them pause on whether or not they invest in this. But, and it will also give some senators, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, more ammunition to regulate what goes on in the cryptocurrency, Bitcoin space, and everything else. Um, but I would, I would caution that because I think we can jump to conclusions that this is widespread across one market, this market being the cryptocurrency market, and instead looking at these are bad actors within the market, just like in many other areas of our economy. And so while this is a new market, and it's new for many people as they're learning more about cryptocurrency and everything else, I think we need to be very cautious about getting more government involvement, because this is what happens in the marketplace is you can weed out the bad actors, whether it's through the, the legal system like this here or through um, losses, and that pushes people out of the market. So it's unfortunate that $150 billion was lost from this situation, but I hope that it will create more a lesson, another lesson for people to learn from for the future. And what kind of regulations are being put forward and proposed here? Well, you know, there's been a a lot of talk about the central bank digital currency <laughs> that some in Congress want. The Federal Reserve has talked about it. Other countries have talked about it. Um, and I think that is a bad step. That would not be a good thing for the government to get more involved in a marketplace. And, and basically, they've, you know, the Federal Reserve has reduced the value of our dollar, our purchasing power, by about 98% since it was created in 1913. I don't want them to come into another market and messing it up as well. But there are other regulations about how do we put rules of the game in place to make sure that it's not the wild West within the cryptocurrency space. But at the same time, you know, um, I really believe that free markets work. And I, and I believe that you need very limited rules if they're going to put any rules in place. So let's be very cautious of that because we've seen some massive rules and regulations from Dodd-Frank and other bills within the, within the broader financial sector that hasn't really worked very well. So let's make sure we're not going too far. All right, Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, two jails in South Carolina are under scrutiny. Why the Department of Justice is examining them and what it could mean for inmates. And new revelations in the Amazon antitrust lawsuit. The FTC claims founder Jeff Bezos directed the company to run irrelevant ads on search results. Stay tuned for more here on NTD News Today. Welcome back. The judge in charge of former President Trump's 2020 election case has, a, has set some important dates for jury selection. Judge Tanya Chutkin told special counsel Jack Smith and Trump's lawyers that they have to make a list of questions to use for screening potential jurors by January 9th. 
If they can't agree on certain questions, they have to inform the judge in a joint filing explaining each side's position. Potential jurors will come to the courthouse in Washington, D.C. and fill out the questionnaire on February 9th. Both Trump's lawyers and the prosecutors can look up information about the potential jurors on the Internet, but they can't talk to the jurors directly, and they can't use non-public databases. Meanwhile, former Trump's legal team is appealing the partial gag order placed on him by Judge Chutkin. The attorneys wrote in the filing that no court in American history has put a gag order on a defendant who is in the middle of campaigning for public office especially not the leading candidate in a presidential election. Senator John Fetterman has introduced a resolution apparently aimed at Senator Bob Menendez. The measure would strip senators charged with certain crimes from committees and block them from accessing classified information. Fetterman was the first Democratic senator to call for Menendez to step down after he was indicted on bribery charges. And he called for his expulsion after he was charged with acting as a foreign agent on behalf of Egypt. Menendez has stepped down as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but he still has access to classified briefings as a committee member. Menendez attended one of the committee's classified briefings on Ukraine on Wednesday morning. Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal may soon see a familiar face in the House of Representatives, her sister. Sushila Jayapal announced her candidacy on social media. She's looking to succeed Democratic Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon. He announced earlier this week that he was not going to run for re-election. Jayapal is a former county commissioner. She wants to establish herself as a progressive in the race. Jayapal's campaign says her top issues include abortion access, gun safety, and climate issues. Now over to New York, where the FBI has raided the home of a top fundraiser for New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Federal agents burst into the Brooklyn home of Brianna Suggs, one of Mayor Adams' campaign consultants. The raid was conducted yesterday. It comes as part of an investigation over an alleged kickback scheme involving the Turkish government and a Brooklyn construction company. Mayor Adams weighed in on the raid at a press conference yesterday. I owe my campaign to the highest ethical standards. Any inquiry that is done, we're going to fully participate and make sure that it's done correctly. Uh, I have not been contacted by anyone from any uh, uh, law enforcement agency. And that's why I came back from D.C. to be here to be on the ground and look at this inquiry as it was made. Adams was on a trip to Washington for a slate of White House immigration meetings, which was cut short due to the investigation. According to law enforcement, the raid was connected to a broader public corruption probe. It aimed to establish if money was illegally funneled to Adams' 2021 campaign for mayor. The raid was purposely conducted while the mayor was out of town, according to the New York Post. Investigators are looking into whether Adams' campaign conspired with the Turkish government on the construction company. The Post reports that the investigation focused on gathering evidence of foreign funds entering his campaign through straw donors. According to the warrant obtained by the New York Times, agents were looking for evidence of the theft of federal funds and wire fraud. The Justice Department has begun a civil rights investigation into two South Carolina jails. The probe will examine whether there, there are systemic civil rights violations at the two facilities. 
Our investigation into the Alvin S. Glenn Detention Center follows reports from public sources and stakeholders regarding the experience of incarcerated people at that facility. The investigation comes after the death of an inmate at one of the jails under investigation. The DOJ says Jamal Sutherland died after jail staff repeatedly tased and pepper sprayed him when he refused to leave his cell. The department said last year it wouldn't bring charges against two former officers involved in his death. The second jail under investigation has had at least six inmates die since February 2022. An Alaska man is accused of sending a threatening message to a U.S. senator. Arthur Charles Graham is charged with making interstate threats to kidnap and injure a current U.S. senator. Court documents say Graham sent an email on September 28th stating he planned to hunt down and physically harm the senator. Four days later, staffers in the senator's D.C. office notified U.S. Capitol Police. The FBI tracked the email to Graham and he admitted that he sent it. Court documents do not identify the senator, but they do use pronouns that indicate the recipient was female. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski is the only current female U.S. senator from Alaska. A spokesperson for, the, for Murkowski's office said they were unable to comment. Graham is scheduled to appear in court today. New details from the antitrust lawsuit against Amazon. The Federal Trade Commission says founder Jeff Bezos gave the go-ahead to the company's shift toward online advertisements. The agency alleges the move helped increase the company's profits at the expense of customer experiences. The newly unsealed portions were filed in a Seattle federal court yesterday. In a settlement, an Amazon spokesperson says the company works hard to make it easy for customers to find the items they want and discover similar options by providing a mix of search results. The FTC and 17 state attorneys general sued Amazon back in September. They accused the company of cramming its online marketplace full of irrelevant advertising which allegedly raised consumer prices. Amazon previously said its platform has led to lower prices and faster delivery times for its customers. One of the world's biggest shipping firms is laying off thousands of more workers during the holiday season. Maersk said Friday it plans to cut 3,500 jobs, most of them in the next eight weeks. The Danish company already let 6,500 employees go this year. Maersk says less demand and lower prices have tanked its revenues. A sign the pandemic-driven shipping boom is over. Ford is recalling close to 200,000 Mustangs. The recall is due to a brake fluid level sensor. It may not activate the visual warning indicator when brake fluid is low. The, issues, the issue impacts 2020 through 2023 models. Ford says the fix is a software update that can be performed at a dealership at no cost to owners. The company plans to start sending letters to affected owners on December 4th. And next we turn to the latest development in the House Judiciary Committee's probe into whether major climate groups may be violating federal antitrust laws. Chairman Jim Jordan subpoenaed a coalition of financial institutions and a corporate social responsibility advocacy group earlier this week after they allegedly failed to respond to requests for documents. Let's hear from Epic Times business reporter Kevin Stockland. He produced the Shadow State documentary and he's also a former Wall Street banker. 
Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. To begin with, what would you say is the significance of Representative Jim Jordan's demands for documents and communications from the As You So and the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero in the context of these antitrust laws and ESG? Well, it's part of a bigger effort that um, congressional Republicans and also conservative state AGs are now making. They are not just reaching out to these organizations. They're reaching out to the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance, Net Zero Banking Alliance. Um, and it's um, they're asking for information, correspondence, records. Um, it's either a way to warn these organizations and their, their member companies that they may be violating U.S. antitrust laws or more seriously, um, it could be a prelude to uh, the discovery phase of an antitrust lawsuit. And looking at, as you so again, could you explain for us the allegations that Jim Jordan has regarding collusion facilitated by, as you so? So As You So is a nonprofit advocacy group, and what they do is they develop policies, whether those are climate policies or racial policies or whatever they come up with, and then they present them to companies and they try to get companies to change their policies or implement policies that As You So wants. If companies refuse to do this, uh, As You So and other organizations like them will typically build alliances with asset managers who own the share of these companies to force corporate votes and, and in this way really force companies to do what these advocacy groups want them to do. Now Jim Jordan has warned of the impact of these what he's called collusive agreements on competition and on consumers. Could you provide more detail about that impact and how it could harm potentially harm the economy? Well, one of the biggest issues that they're pursuing is really targeting fossil fuel companies, oil and gas and coal companies, and, and trying to put them out of business. Um, and obviously, we're seeing the result of this on consumers. It's driving up the price of energy, um, certainly at the pump, but electricity prices as well. In an extreme case, we're looking at our electric grid um, to the extent that they're putting coal plants out of business. That could undermine the stability of our electric grid and lead to more rolling blackouts for consumers. So. The, the effects are very serious. And what has been the response, do you know, from major financial institutions such as BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street to similar letters that Jordan has written to them? Well, we're seeing a good bit of backpedaling. We saw um, the BlackRock uh, CEO, um, Larry Fink, come out and say, you know, he's not going to use the term ESG anymore. Um, we're seeing um, Vanguard, for example, drop out of the Net Zero Asset Managers Alliance. When uh, Republicans sent a letter like this to the Net Zero Insurance Alliance, half of their members dropped out within the next few months. So I think we are starting to see real concern on the part of corporations that they may, in fact, be violating U.S. laws. What kind of, what do you expect the potential implications to be that, that they will actually change their stance? Um, you know, we'll have to see. It's going to depend on the on the individual companies. There certainly is a lot of money invested in this, and 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 you know a lot of support behind it. The UN, the Biden administration, etc. Um, but we do have antitrust laws, and they prohibit companies from colluding uh, against other companies or other industries. So if you're breaking the law, um, that that is a real risk. If you're an insurance company or an asset manager or a bank, not to mention that you could be sued by people who invest with these asset managers. Managers for for misusing the funds and, and and violating the trust the fiduciary trust that they placed in you 
Absolutely. And finally, Kevin, what impact do you think this investigation could have on the broader discussion surrounding antitrust laws and ESG policies? Well, uh, so the, the as you so has not responded, and a lot of these organizations have not responded to the request for information. So that's why we're now looking at a subpoena. Uh, so I think the first response was a stonewalling, uh, but now we're going to start seeing subpoenas. We're also going to see action by state attorney generals. There's not just federal antitrust laws; there's also state antitrust laws. And so, you know, it, it's not something that the members want to respond to. But the law may force them to do that. And so the one thing that we know for sure is that this issue is going to heat up. Kevin Stockland, business reporter with The Epic Times. Thank you so much. Thanks, Stefania. Coming up, turning heartbreak into a positive force. We hear from a mother on how she combats teen drug abuse and what she learned through her daughter's diary after a fatal overdose. America's biggest U.S. hospital lobbying group is suing the Biden administration over a controversial website tracking rule. What are they alleging? We'll have the details soon when we return. Thank you for staying with us. Federal, state, and local officials in San Francisco are joining efforts to combat the fentanyl crisis in the city. The U.S. Attorney General Ismail Ramsey and Mayor London Breed detailed the workings of the plan known as All Hands on Deck. Today we are announcing the comprehensive, coordinated law enforcement program to address the fentanyl crisis in San Francisco. All Hands on Deck. This is a joint federal, state, and local law enforcement response to the open-air drug markets that exist in San Francisco. We are not letting up. Even as APEC approaches, we are not letting up. After APEC goes away from San Francisco, our goal is to do everything we can to ensure the safety of the residents and the people who visit and live in San Francisco and work in San Francisco, especially the Tenderloin and the Soma community, that they have safety too. The program targets individuals who sell fentanyl in the city, particularly in two neighborhoods where open-air drug markets exist. The plan includes stepping up arrests of street dealers and suppliers conducting joint federal and local arrest operations, fast-tracking federal cases, and bringing federal charges against drug dealers. Ramsey added that tackling the fentanyl crisis is a priority for the Department of Justice in San Francisco and nationwide. Data shows that fentanyl was linked to over 500 overdoses in the city this year. Next, we have a story that's both heart-wrenching and inspiring. It's about Jackie Siegel, an American socialite and beauty pageant director and the tragic loss of her daughter, Victoria, to a drug overdose. Despite her family's high-profile life, Jackie's story transcends fame, as she's dedicated her life to a mission of raising awareness for drug overdose prevention. Jackie's family is famously depicted in the documentary, The Queen of Versailles, which showcases their journey building their private Orlando residence. However, it's her life's work since then that we're highlighting today. It was all over the headlines that our daughter died of a drug overdose. And uh, you know, 
I felt like I could have been destined to be like a doom and gloom and been very depressed and not done anything about the drug epidemic. But my daughter, Victoria, now is my guardian angel, and she light, lit up this fire inside of my heart. Jackie's life took an unexpected turn when she lost her beloved daughter, Victoria, at the young age of 18. She was one of 129 Americans who lost their lives to drug overdose on June 6, 2015. She sent a text to one of her friends in the event of her death. If she, she knew she was playing with, like, she knew she was playing Russian roulette every time she took, popped a pill or did a line of whatever or anything, but she knew she could overdose. Um, but she was chasing that high. And she said in that text that if she passed away, for me to publish her diary, because she wanted this, she knew this diary, her diary could save lives. Victoria's diary is a powerful account of her journey, revealing some of the reasons that may lead teenagers to experiment with drugs. Jackie's mission now is to share these insights and prevent other families from experiencing the same heartbreak. Which I missed all of the, the warning signs. Um, some of it could be they're depressed, the, the stress from school or peer pressure, um, or feeling they're too fat or too ugly or not good enough. And just it's growing up is not an easy thing to do. We look back and the real life is much harder. But but as a child learning to cope, many of them turn to drugs. Recognizing the urgency of this issue, Jackie is determined to educate parents and provide them with a crucial tool, naloxone, an antidote for opioid overdose. Naloxone is an antidote for any opioid. So it's like a Lazarus drug. It brings people back to life once they've overdosed. So every parent should have this naloxone um, in their medicine cabinet or in their glove compartment because even if their child is not doing drugs, there could be a, a, one of their friends that comes over that could be doing drugs and overdose at their house. Jackie recalls a harrowing incident where naloxone saved a life, a powerful reminder of the importance of having it readily available. A lot of kids now are vaping in middle school, and they're thinking vaping's no big deal, it's nicotine, and but what's happening is the kids are getting the vapes secondhand. The drug dealers fill the cartridges with chemicals, and unfortunately they're putting fentanyl in, in many of these vapes. The dangers are real. One small exposure could have fatal consequences. Jackie is on a mission to raise awareness and prevent further tragedies. They have pill presses and they put pill, the fentanyl that looks like candy. It looks like um, like different, like rainbow color. That's I mean, they're targeting the children. This is deadly. I mean, our kids are being murdered. Beyond the grief and challenges, Jackie's dedication to creating a safer world for teenagers and others. And I'm doing my part, you know, I feel I owe it to the, um, the people in America to um, um, try to save lives. I've committed the rest of my life to going out there and, and uh, do what I can. Through the Victoria's Voice Foundation, Jackie spreads awareness with public speaking, resources, and education. I left her room the same way it was from the day that she passed away because I wasn't ready to, um, I mean, I'm still like kind of, 
think she's coming home, or, you know, which I know it's not going to happen, but there's just a part of me that's in this fantasy world that's hoping she's going to walk back through the front door and go up to her room, you know. In memory of Victoria, Jackie's work continues to touch the lives of many, driven by the powerful account of Victoria's diary. For those seeking more information, Jackie's foundation's resources, her book, Victoria's Voice, and her movie, The Princess of Versailles, provide valuable insights. Knowledge is the first step in preventing a tragedy. Jackie's message to parents is simple. Get to know your children, be their best friend, and educate them about the risks. Yeah, that was uh, very touching to get to meet Jackie and hear her story and see her dedication. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing story. She's up to a lot of really incredible things. Mm -hmm. I know she told you about some of the early warning signs to watch out for, uh, or warning signs related to addiction. Yep. What are they? So she did um, tell me a few of those. Definitely consider um, if your child is going through any major changes, just to keep an eye on that, such as a complete completely different change of group of friends or suddenly becoming withdrawn from social activities. Just tune in is, is what she's been saying and try and get to know your, your child to monitor for strange changes. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. You were, when you were talking with Jackie um, and when you were researching her story, you learned about her husband um, whose life was actually um, changed in a positive way um, you know, yeah. after her, after his daughter passed, you know, as yeah. sad as it is. After such a tragedy as that, they've really transformed it into something productive, as we saw. Um, I did mention there at the end that um, people can see the film that Jackie made, which is The Princess of Versailles. That's on YouTube. Um, but in that film, we, we got to know David Siegel uh, better. And he talks about how, you know, he spent much of his life dedicated to building up his wealth, and he did. He, he built up the Westgate Resorts. Um, and since his daughter's death, that's all changed, and now he's just dedicated to making sure that this doesn't happen to anybody else, this death from overdose. Incredible. What can people do if they want to find out more about Jackie and maybe even help? For sure. So if you want to know more, head on over to the Victoria's Voice Foundation website. Um, you can Go and find out, uh, read Victoria's Voice, which is the name of the book, uh, which published her diary, Victoria's Diary, and that charts her journey from 12 years old up until 18. Um, there's the v Princess of Versailles, and um, there's actually a, a Broadway show coming out next year, which is something Jackie told me that they're working on. Um, so that should be out too. Awesome. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Okay, let's head to some quick headlines. First, the biggest U.S. hospital lobbying group is taking on the Biden administration. The hospitals want to use trackers to monitor users on their websites, but guidance from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services won't let them. Last December, the HHS told healthcare providers not to allow third-party tech companies to collect information from web visitors. They said allowing this it could be a violation of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. But now the American Hospital Association and other groups are arguing that this info isn't individually identifiable health information, so it's not protected by the law. 
Turning to Las Vegas, some 35,000 hospitality workers are threatening to go on strike if they don't get a better deal by next Friday. Members of the Culinary Workers and Bartenders Unions voted to walk out against major casino and resort operators. Negotiations for a labor contract has been going on for seven months, and the union authorized a citywide strike in September. This would be their first strike since 1991. The Las Vegas unions are considered among the most powerful in the country. Like other unions that have made headlines, they're looking for higher wages and protections against technology. Alaska Airlines is being taken to court by three passengers. They were aboard a flight on October 22nd when off-duty pilot Joseph David Emerson allegedly tried to disable the plane's engines. The passengers are accusing the airlines of failing to ensure flight safety. And they want to know why Emerson wasn't subjected to pre-flight security screening. They are also asking for compensation for psychological suffering. Over to Los Angeles, a man has been arrested for allegedly stealing $4 million worth of Levo Lenovo computers. The stolen computers were tracked to the city of Colton in California. The man admitted to cutting the bolt seal of a trailer to identify the computers inside and throwing away a tracking device. The actual destination for the computers was in Ohio. And in Hawaii, a wildfire is burning in a remote mountainous region of central Oahu. The good news is it's moving away from population centers. While nearly two square miles of forest have been burned, the fire hasn't reached any homes or property, nor has anyone needed to evacuate. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics released its latest employment report earlier today. According to the data, the U.S. economy added 150,000 jobs in October, which is less than expected. NTD Business host Don Ma talks to a labor market economist for more insight on the report. And now here with me is the chief economist at the online job platform ZipRecruiter, Julia Pollock. So, Julia, 150,000 jobs added. Um, to start off, what is the sentiment right now around this number? Well, this number is lower than most people expected. And you know, even if you account for the fact that UAW workers were on strike during this period, even if you pop those 25,000 workers back in, this is still a meaningful slowdown in the labor market. And the household survey is even more concerning with a large increase in unemployment for young workers, an uptick in the overall rate, an increase in the U6 broader unemployment measure of underutilized labor uh, that shows that workers are increasingly unemployed and underemployed. So last month we got a bit of, of a higher number, uh, this month a bit lower. So, I mean, are we on a trajectory? Is it, is it clear as of right now that the labor market is cooling down? Yes, I think it's uh, sort of indisputable in this report. Every single key indicator of demand for labor weakened. Uh, the number of working hours and overtime hours fell. Wage growth cooled. It's really quite low at the moment. Over just the past quarter of the last three months, uh, wage growth has come in at an annualized 3.2% rate. That's very, very low. 3.5% would be consistent with 2% inflation. Um, and given how uh, quickly productivity is growing, workers really are going to want to see stronger wage gains. Um, 
these real wage declines are causing real disposable income declines. That's going to put pressure on consumer spending and could put further pressure on the labor market in the coming months. And speaking of unemployment, uh, the rate ticked up a tenth of a percent last month. I, I mean, uh, one month in increase doesn't make a trend, but is there any reason uh, to worry that it could become a trend? Definitely. Uh, the diffusion index fell quite substantially from 61.4% to 52%. That's a meaningful narrowing in uh, job growth. And typically before job growth falls across the board, it falls in specific sectors. And then there's sort of a ripple effect into other industries as well. So a narrowing in job growth should be cause for concern. The manufacturing diffusion index, so the measure of the breadth of job gains in manufacturing, actually was below 50. Uh, it went all the way to 42. It dips well below 50, um, which suggests that there are more manufacturing industries, sub-industries, losing jobs than gaining jobs right now. Should we have any comfort in knowing that perhaps if the unemployment rate uh, gets too high, uh, perhaps the Federal Reserve may consider cutting rates and then that could potentially give a boost uh, to the rate there. What are your thoughts here in, on this dynamic? Absolutely. So I think we should take enormous comfort from the fact that this slowdown is not taking place because of any real fundamental weaknesses on balance sheets of businesses or households. It is purely an orchestrated slowdown uh, by the Fed. And so if rate hikes end, if uh, the Fed starts cutting rates next year, we will likely see not just a stock market rally, as we're already seeing today on, on the expectation that that could happen, um, but we'll see hiring unleashed as well. All right. Thank you so much, as always. Julia Pollack. Thank you. Coming up, President Putin is pulling Russia out of a global ban on nuclear testing. What's behind the decision, and is there reason for concern? And amid the war in Ukraine, opera singers are searching for a home. Get an inside view of their new basement theater after this short break. Welcome back. Now we head to the top stories from around the world. First, let's start with the current AI safety summit in the UK. Today, Tesla CEO Elon Musk sat down with Britain's prime minister. The two agree that AI-powered robots need a physical turn-off button so they don't get out of control. I, I'm saying this is something we should be quite concerned about because um, if the robot can, robot can follow you anywhere, then, you know, what if they just one day get a software update and they're not so friendly anymore? Um, we've got a James Cameron movie on our hands. Musk also says he thinks AI is the most disruptive force in history, speculating the technology could be able to do everything and make employment as we know it today a thing of the past. The billionaire added that it's important China plays its role in making sure the technology doesn't get out of hand. The Chinese regime is known for being lax on safety standards and not following international regulations. At the same time in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the U.S. for new sanctions targeting Russia. The U.S. is targeting a Russian energy project in Siberia. 
The project is expected to ship liquefied natural gas to global markets. The U.S. also sanctioned a dozen Russian companies for supporting Russia's military with drones. Zelensky says all of the sanctions must work in full so that there is no chance for Russia to bypass them. In Italy, at least five people are dead and many more are missing. In France, 1.2 million households were left without electricity. That's after heavy rain and floods brought by Storm Kieran. In addition, it also brought strong winds. Falling trees and branches caused deaths in France, Spain, Belgium and the Netherlands, including the five-year-old. The storm swept across Europe, forcing schools, airports and train services to shut down and prompting some regional evacuations in France and Britain. In northern Italy, firefighters today rescued four tourists trapped in their cars after flooding hit. And lastly, an update to Australian tragedy where three people died from mushroom poisoning. The suspect, Erin Patterson, appeared in court today. She has been charged with murder. Her ex-husband's parents died after a lunch at Patterson's house in August. All four guests had to be hospitalized. Three of them died. Patterson only experienced mild symptoms. She previously denied any wrongdoing. She did not seek bail in court today, and the case will next be heard in May of 2024. President Putin has signed a bill pulling Russia out of a global nuclear test ban. It's a move that Moscow said was needed to equal the, U the status of the United States. Here's a look at some questions the move raises. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a law withdrawing Russia's ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, the global treaty banning nuclear weapons tests. The move is condemned by the organization that promotes adherence to the landmark arms control pact. Though expected, it's a sign of a deep chill between the U.S. and Russia. Moscow says the aim is to restore parity with the United States, which has signed but never ratified the treaty. But experts worry this walk back could be a sign Russia is ramping up towards a test. The CTBT was formed in 1996 and bans nuclear weapon test explosions or any other nuclear explosions. The goal? To reduce and eliminate the development of nuclear arms. 187 states have signed the treaty with 178 passing corresponding laws in their parliament. Of the nine countries that possess nuclear weapons, Britain, France and Russia have signed and ratified the agreement. The U.S., Israel and China have signed but not ratified, with India, Pakistan and North Korea yet to do either. The treaty can only legally come into force once 44 named countries which possess nuclear weapons or have nuclear power and research reactors have signed and ratified. But in practice, it has created a de facto norm against nuclear testing. Putin has stated the decision to withdraw its ratification is to mirror the current status of the CTBT in the United States. It's another move that heightens tensions between the countries since the start of the Ukraine war. Moscow suspended its last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the U.S. in February, and Putin has moved tactical nuclear missiles to Belarus on Ukraine's border. No country except North Korea has tested a nuclear weapon since the 1990s. The move to pull away from the CTBT gives Russia legal cover to test if it wanted to. 
but it says it is not a statement of intent and that it won't test unless the U.S. does. It has also committed to continue supplying data to the global monitoring system which alerts the world to any nuclear test. However, security analysts believe Putin could be keeping the option open in case the country's fortunes in Ukraine worsen, to send a dramatic signal for the West to back off. Opera singers in a northeastern city in Ukraine are talking, taking to a makeshift basement theater. That's after the region became a regular target of Russian missiles. Let's take a look at these underground opera houses. In a theater basement in the Ukrainian city of Kharkiv, these opera singers and orchestra are holding a dress rehearsal safe from the threat of Russian airstrikes. More than 20 months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Kharkiv State Academic Opera and Ballet Theater has kitted out its basement with a stage, a makeshift orchestra pit and rows of seats. Among the performers is opera singer Olena Starikova. Today is the opening of our improvised stage, and we're very happy about this incredible celebration. Celebration because performing opera for the residents of Kharkiv can now be safe. The people can be safe, and we can gift them with our songs, with our performances, and bring them joy at this difficult time for our country and for our city. Ukraine's second city, which banned mass public events when Russia invaded in February 2022, is regularly targeted by missiles. From the moment they are fired across the Russian border, just 20 miles away, they can take as little as 45 seconds to land, sometimes before the air raid siren can go off, say staff. But the theatre is built to withstand heavy damage, according to chief engineer Andrei Tolobikov. This building was designed as a congress hall for party members. That is why the building requirements were high and the size of the project was grandiose. So the building can withstand a lot. It's monolithic and a safe construction. The elite it was designed for needed to be safe. Despite the regular airstrikes, officials say residents have returned to Kharkiv since fleeing at the start of the invasion. The theatre hopes to put on performances regularly, with the basement essentially serving as a bomb shelter. We missed performing on stage. We sung at many places, garages, forests, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, but there's nothing like the stage. Opera is a fairy tale. All of us, the ballet troupe, the opera troupe, we're all incredibly happy. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. We have more news just after the break. Civilians in Gaza getting caught in the crossfire after the Hamas terror attack. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is in Israel to address the problem. Find out how Israel's president responds to this sensitive issue. Eric Trump testifying again in the New York fraud trial. What does he say and what does it mean for former President Trump? America's biggest U.S. hospital lobbying group is suing the Biden administration over a controversial website tracking rule. What are they alleging? A 
13,000% spike in the number of Chinese people arrested illegally crossing the U.S. border, many of them military-aged men. Why are they coming? Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel. He met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog today. The two spoke about Israel's right to defend itself and protecting Palestinian civilians. Take a look. Israel has not only the, the right but the obligation to defend itself and to do everything possible to make sure that this October 7th can never happen again. Um, and at the same time, and as you've just uh, made clear, uh, how Israel does this matters and it is very important that when it comes to the protection of civilians who are caught in a crossfire of Hamas's making, that everything be done to uh, protect them. This is a leaflet which we are sending by over 1,200,000 leaflets to the citizens of Gaza. We've carried out 6 million text messages and 4 million phone calls to the citizens of Gaza according to the rules of international law where we alerted the citizens in advance, including before the Jabalia attack. Israeli officials repeatedly said that Hamas is hiding in tunnels below areas where Palestinian civilians are located, such as hospitals or refugee camps. Before the meeting with Herzog, Blinken addressed the Israeli Senate. He's also expected to discuss allowing humanitarian aid into Gaza with Israeli officials. Blinken is set to visit more countries in the region after Israel. Just recently, he went to six Arab countries. Eric Trump taking the stand for a second day at the Manhattan court. He and his brother Donald Trump Jr. testified this week in the Trump family's $250 million fraud trial. Both of them say they have no knowledge of the financial statements from the Trump organization. The assistant attorney general asked Eric Trump how he ensured the financial statements he signed accurately represented his family's assets. Eric Trump said he relied on an accounting firm. Yesterday, the assistant AG presented emails dating back to 2010, as well as phone conversations. He argued that by 2012, Eric Trump must have known of his father's financial statements. Eric Trump said that he was not personally aware of the statement of financial condition. Eric Trump asserted that the records shown in court don't prove that he reviewed the financial statements that are at the center of the case. And for legal analysis on this testimony and what it means for the former president, we'll hear from lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center, Paul Kaminar. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. To begin with, how do you think Eric and Donald Trump Jr.'s testimonies and their roles in the Trump Organization impact the allegations of fraud that are, have been made against them? Well, both uh, Eric and Donald testified uh, the last couple of days uh, before the uh, New York uh, court, the New York judge there, and I thought they did a great job from the reports that I've heard and also the press conferences afterwards uh, by Donald Trump Jr. And uh, the government there, uh, the Attorney General Letitia James, is trying to say that they uh, overinflated the assets of the Trump Organization in these uh, what's called statements of financial conditions, uh, which is the uh, what the properties are worth and so forth. And uh, they both testify, look, uh, you know, we hire accountants uh, to do all that. Uh, we're not CPAs. 
uh, that they were uh, did some interaction with some of them, uh, but uh, they're not responsible for the numbers that were placed on it, number one. And number two, uh, the banks themselves uh, had a duty to do their own individual analysis of the properties to see if they were valued at the proper amount for the loans that were going to be given. And so what do you think is the significance of their arguments and their testimonies? Well, the significance is that uh, in terms of their liability uh, individually, uh, I don't see uh, them being held uh, liable uh, for uh, inflating it. And keep in mind uh, that this is a civil trial. Uh, this is not a criminal trial. And, and uh, the worst thing that can happen in this case is that the Trump organization will be liable for uh, damages that they claim uh, were the amount that the banks uh, uh, overvalued uh, the property. Keep in mind also that uh, all these loans were repaid. The banks were not out uh, one penny. Uh, so, uh, and furthermore, uh, there's an appeal on this right now because the judge weeks ago found the Trump Organization liable for fraud, and that's on appeal separately. So what's going on now is the valuation of how much damages should be owed to the state of New York. But this whole thing really is, is preposterous to begin with. It's a vendetta uh, that uh, Letitia James is going after Trump personally because of politics. So uh, uh, their testimony, I think, uh, helped uh, their cause. And uh, we'll see what happens. And how do you think that um, former President Trump's upcoming testimony could impact the trial? Well, that's a very good question. Yeah, he's, he's scheduled to testify uh, on Monday, and uh, uh, I, I will, you know, we'll, we'll see what he says there. Uh, but uh, he had a deposition in this case during which he took the Fifth Amendment uh, to all the questions. So uh, we'll see whether he continues to take the Fifth or whether he uh, testifies about the valuations that uh, they claim he overinflated. So do you think that could forecast anything about the way that Trump might approach his upcoming criminal trials? Well, that's a good question, because he's facing four criminal trials, and anything he says on the stand now could be used against him, not only in this case, uh, but also on the other four cases. And, and the one here uh, in D.C. is the important one to follow, because the judge reinstated her gag order against Trump, and that issue itself is on appeal. Uh, what would you say are the key legal considerations regarding Ivanka Trump's request to stay the trial and to block her testimony in the Yeah, that's a good question. She was originally a defendant in the case, and then they dismissed her as a defendant, but they said, oh, wait a minute, we want you to come and testify anyway. Uh, uh, she's got—she uh, objected to that subpoena. She also filed a motion to stay the whole case while that motion is decided. Um, she's in Florida right now, and uh, it's not clear what her testimony would, would add uh, to the case. So that issue uh, will still need to be resolved. Uh, I'm not sure where that will come out, uh, but I think it's just another example of them pestering the uh, Trump uh, family. Lastly, Paul, what what impact could this trial have on the broader legal and political um, landscape? 
Well, in terms of the uh, uh, political landscape, I don't think it will have much. I mean, obviously, criminal charges are more serious than the civil charges. Uh, and and uh, if anything, the criminal charges have helped uh, Trump uh, in the political landscape. Uh, but if he's found, uh, or not he, but the Trump organization has found that they owe money to uh, uh, the New York State, that will be appealed. Uh, so there's still a long way to go before we hear the last word on this case or any of the other cases that are pending. All right, Paul Kaminar, lead counsel at the National Legal and Policy Center. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Former President Trump is reportedly set to host a group of Florida Republicans at Mar-a-Lago in the middle of next week, just one day after the third GOP primary debate, in fact, which will be held in Miami. Trump is skipping the third debate, as he did the first two. Instead, he'll spend the Wednesday campaigning in Florida, where he'll host an event just down the road from the debate venue. Coming up, President Biden visiting Maine. The governor is asking for help as the state recovers from shootings last week. Find out what she's requesting. Could major climate groups be breaking the law? The latest on a House probe into potential antitrust violations. Plus insights from a former Wall Street banker in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Thank you for staying with us. Chinese illegal immigrants surging at the U.S. border. Border Patrol says they made 13 times more arrests than last year. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more on why these people are coming from China. A big jump in the number of illegal Chinese immigrants heading into the U.S. From January to September, Border Patrol arrested over 20,000 Chinese migrants arriving through the border. A total almost 13 times more than the same time last year. A volunteer serving hot oatmeal to the border crossers said one thing caught his eye. When we're used to seeing border crossers here, Central Americans, Mexicans, trying to avoid the border patrol. And here we have this giant mass of Asians coming in saying, please, and they make this, please arrest me. Where's, where's the guy who's going to arrest me? It's very unusual for this area. Some of them say they hope to escape the repressive political climate and the bleak economic prospects at home. The government was oppressing us and trying to collect our lands with a really low price. Then they asked a bunch of gang members and their staff to beat us up and have conflicts. Chen said this video clip shows local officers assaulting his uncle and fellow farmers. He adds that the journey from China to the U.S. isn't an easy one. It was not easy to get here. Climbing mountains and waiting basically went through everything. Many of them first fly to Ecuador without a visa. From there, they trek through jungles in Panama's Darien Gap, then across several Central American countries before reaching the U.S. Many enter the country in the San Diego area. I don't know the future. I don't know. 
for authorities gauging who truly needs protection can't be a touchy subject. Lawmakers saying over 90 percent of the illegal Chinese immigrants in 2023 are single adults. Officials are concerned that they could engage in espionage activities. President Biden is in Maine. He's visiting to pay respects to the 18 people killed in a shooting there last week. The governor of Maine is asking the federal government for some help with the recovery. She hopes some businesses can secure low-interest loans to make up for losses during the shelter-in-place orders last week. Numerous businesses closed during the two days that law enforcement searched for the gunman. So Governor Janet Mills is requesting an economic injury disaster loan declaration. If approved, up to $2 million would become available to businesses in two counties. According to the governor's office, the loans could be used to pay fixed debts, payroll, and other bills. The FDA is proposing a ban on the use of brominated vegetable oil, an additive found in some sodas. The agency has concluded that brominated vegetable oil, or BVO, is no longer considered safe after animal studies showed that it was toxic to the thyroid gland. BVO is used mostly in citrus-flavored beverages. California banned BVO last month, becoming the first state in the U.S. to do so. The ingredient is already banned in Europe and Japan. The FDA will be taking public comments on the proposed ban through January 17th. In 1970, the FDA removed BVO from its list of substances that are generally recognized as safe. As a result, many beverage companies began to reformulate their products to replace BVO. Walgreens is canceling bonuses for corporate staff this year amid mounting financial pressures. The company is also slashing bonuses for its store and pharmacy managers. This comes as the pharmacy giant contends with both labor issues and disappointing quarterly earnings. The company notified staff of the bonus cuts on Tuesday. That was the second day of a planned three-day series of walkouts by Walgreens pharmacy staff. The company said the move was unrelated to any labor matters. The memo blamed the bonus cuts on financial results that, quote, did not meet expectations. Some retailers are giving shoppers a reason to be thankful this Thanksgiving. They're offering cheaper holiday meals, like Target, which is selling a full feast for $25. The meal serves four. It includes a 10-pound turkey, potatoes, green beans, cranberry sauce, stuffing mix, and gravy. Customers can find the deal on Target's website. Walmart is also offering a lower price on holiday staples. The retailer has two meals, one you cook from scratch and a ready-to-bake option that are cheaper than last year. Meanwhile, Aldi is also lowering the price of over 70 items by up to 50%. Seasonal items such as kitchen staples are included. The holiday shopping season is now upon us. Americans are expected to splurge, but not as much as last year. The National Retail Federation predicts sales to increase by up to 4%. That's less than the 5.4% growth in 2022. The NRF attributes the slower growth to inflation, higher borrowing costs, and student loan repayments resuming. Retailers are also ramping up discounts to draw in consumers. Let's head to some quick headlines. First, the biggest U.S. hospital lobbying group is taking on the Biden administration. 
The hospitals want to use trackers to monitor users on their websites, but guidance from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services won't let them. Last December, the HHS told healthcare providers not to allow third-party tech companies to collect information from web visitors. They said allowing this could be a violation of the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. But now, the American Hospital Association and other groups are arguing that this info isn't individually identifiable health information, so it's not protected by the law. Turning to Las Vegas, some 35,000 hospitality workers are threatening to go on strike if they don't get a better deal by next Friday. Members of the Culinary Workers and Bartenders Unions voted to walk out against major casino and resort operators. Negotiations for a labor contract has been going on for seven months, and the union authorized a citywide strike in September. The first, this would be their first strike since 1991. The Las Vegas unions are considered among the most powerful in the country. Like other unions that have been making headlines recently, they're looking for higher wages and protections against technology. Alaska Airlines is being taken to court by three passengers. They were aboard a flight on October 22nd when off-duty pilot Joseph David Emerson allegedly tried to disable the plane's engines. The passengers are accusing the airlines of failing to ensure flight safety and they want to know why Emerson wasn't subjected to pre-flight screening security screening. They're also asking for compensation for psychological suffering. Over to Los Angeles, a man has been arrested for allegedly stealing $4 million worth of Lenovo computers. The stolen computers were tracked to the city of Colton in California. The man admitted to cutting the bolt seal of a trailer to identify the computers inside and throwing away a tracking device. The actual destination for the computers was in Ohio. And in Hawaii, a wildfire is burning in a remote mountainous region of central Oahu. The good news is it's moving away from population centers. While nearly two square miles of forest have been burned, the fire hasn't reached any homes or properties, nor has anyone needed to evacuate. One plaque at a time. A small group of Russian activists keeps alive the memories of millions oppressed by the Soviet regime. But their efforts didn't come easy. We'll have the details soon when we return. And now for some top news from Asia. Indo-Pacific countries are feeling caught between China and the United States, but U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says they shouldn't have to choose sides. In a speech ahead of this month's APEC summit, Yellen sought to reassure Asian countries that the U.S. is trying to avoid dividing the global economy. The United States does not seek to decouple from China. A full separation of our economies or an approach in which countries, including those in the Indo-Pacific, are forced to take sides, would have significant negative global repercussions. We have no interest in such a divided world and its disastrous effects. Yellen said that fully decoupling from China's economy isn't practical. She talked about the complexity of Asian supply chains and the region's deep economic ties to China. 
Well, instead, the U.S. is instead seeking to diversify from China by investing and manufacturing at home and by boosting ties with allies around the world, including others in the Indo-Pacific. Her comments came amid concerns over geopolitical tensions between the world's two largest economies. Those disagreements have led to growing controls on export and national security technologies. Meanwhile, an upcoming trade fair in Shanghai is drawing criticism. The European Union Chamber of Commerce called it a political showcase instead of a business event. Participation at the fair has dropped from over 40 percent to just 32 percent since it first started. Reasons include declining investment values and limited policy changes. Over to India, the country's capital has been shrouded in dense toxic haze, with some schools ordered to close for two days. Overall, the air quality index reached 480, a severe level. Peaks in some areas are in the 600s and 700s. For context, it reached the lower 400s in the northern U.S. when the Canadian wildfire smoke blew over this summer. In New Delhi, cold, heavy air is trapping construction dust, vehicle emissions, and smoke from crop stubble burning. This happens every winter. Right now, the city tops the real-time list of the world's most polluted cities in a Swiss air quality measurement. Such weather conditions pose a health hazard to people with existing diseases. One small plaque at a time. A group of Russian activists are doing their best to keep alive the memories of the Soviet Union's victims. Decades of communism in the country claimed the lives of millions of innocent people. For years, leading chronicler Memorial International and its last address project has put up 1,200 plaques on buildings across the country. Mikhail Shenker is a coordinator in Moscow. Every plaque has an applicant. We don't invent names or our heroes. Public initiative is the basis of Last Address's memorial project. People order from us a placement of plaques in memory of their relatives, fathers, grandfathers. Each is engraved with the person's name, profession and their dates of arrest, internment, execution or formal rehabilitation. They memorialize one victim at their last home before they were executed or exiled, or left to die in a prison colony. But Memorial International's battle to commemorate lost loved ones has not been without difficulty. The institution was banned almost two years ago, after more than three decades of painstaking work. President Vladimir Putin has sidelined those trying to research the crimes of seven decades of communism, possibly because comparisons could be drawn with his own suppression of dissent, or blur the patriotism needed to drive his war in Ukraine. Some locals resent the plaques too. They feel they are at odds with prevailing official patriotism or say they are turning the city into a cemetery. Yevgenia Kulakova works for Last Address in St. Petersburg. After we have hung up the plaques, situations happen when they are removed. But fortunately, those cases are still an overwhelming minority. We have now installed 434 signs. According to the last count, 45 have been removed. We're going to recount them soon, and there will be more, unfortunately. But this still means that most of the plaques continue to hang. Sometimes plaques are taken down, then secretly returned. Mikhail Polyanov's grandfather, career soldier Alexei Perimitov, has one. Shot on July 28, 1937, he was one of thousands accused of espionage and conspiracy at the height of Joseph Stalin's purges, the Great Terror. 
Polyanov feels the number of those against the commemoration has risen. Last year, last address replaced his grandfather's plaque because it had been removed without his knowledge. They hadn't told me anything because they felt sorry for me, because when I knew about it, I nearly collapsed. Memorial has long compiled lists of victims and collected private testimonies, documents from family archives, objects and works of art related to the Soviet prison camp network known as the Gulag. Last year, its archives, museum and library were thought to be the largest public repositories of such materials in Russia. After the break, stargazers flock to a dark park in Rio de Janeiro for a delicious homemade dinner. A growing trend called astro-tourism aims to make astronomy more accessible to the public. The world's top long-distance runners will gather in New York City this Sunday. Who's most likely to win the New York City Marathon? Find out after this short break on NTD News Today. A park in Brazil's Rio de Janeiro is becoming a prime destination for stargazers. It's part of a growing trend called astrotourism, with packages that include dinner and an astronomer-guided experience. NTD's Andrew Thomas looks toward the heavens. Daniel Mello leads the astrotourism in Brazilian Parks Project. The initiative aims to make astronomy more accessible to the public. In the early 20th century, people could view the Milky Way and the Magellanic Clouds from the center of Rio de Janeiro. Nowadays, these large telescopes located in the center of large cities are hardly used due to the excess of artificial light. All major cities are too bright for stargazing, but Desangana State Park is the perfect location. Here at this spot, in the city of Santa Maria Madalena, and in this almost circular region is the Desengano State Park, one of the best places for astronomical activities. The Desengano mountain range gets stargazers even closer to the heavens. Astronomer Igo Borgo is setting up his telescopes. He's expecting a group of 45 tourists. Many come from the city of Rio and stay at local hotels. In the place where we live, the sky is not so dark, so we're not used to pointing the cell phone to the sky. But here, we tested it and saw that you can get very good results. Anna Mostovic welcomes guests at her house who are hungry for more. Her stargazing dinner experience has been a hit for visitors, with tickets going for $50. Yes, we try to show to the Brazilian tourists a little bit of our Polish cuisine and we show them the typical uh, dishes we eat in Poland in common days. Mostovic and Borgo have been doing these astro dinners since 2022. Mostovic was first introduced to the burgeoning industry in college, so she's long known the appeal. Astrotourism is a tourism niche which is beginning to surge mainly after the pandemic period when people perceive they are missing contact with nature and their lives become more significant when they are linked to nature and to preserving the environments. Now Mostovic and Borgo are planning their calendar for the upcoming summer season. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The world's best airport has unveiled a new makeover. Singapore's Changi Airport fully reopened Terminal 2 after a three-and-a-half-year expansion. The new section adds nearly 230,000 square feet to the original building. 
Nature is the overriding design theme with a 14-meter-high digital waterfall display and a vertical garden. There's also a digital sky that changes colors depending on the time of day. The airport added more retail and dining space, including a two-story duty-free wine and spirit shop that has its own robot bartender. The expansion boosts the terminal's capacity by 5 million people. Now the airport can handle 95 million passengers per day. Whoa, that's so cool. Yeah, I want to go. <laughs> I've been there, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, in 2015, I was traveling, and I went through there. And the ride up to the airport is almost as impressive as the airport itself. It's this beautiful street just lined with these gorgeous palm trees. Oh, yeah. wow, incredible. And across that to JFK. <laughs> yeah, right. Well. There have been some features I've known in some airports such as that I've appreciated, like um, prayer rooms or, or meditation rooms. Mm. Those are actually a little bit more common than you'd think. Wow. Yeah, there's an airport in Qatar that has a swimming pool. Incredible. Mm. And one in uh, Munich has an ice rink. Okay. Okay, so many options, but perhaps not the cheapest. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, honey isn't just a sticky treat. It also has many health benefits, including anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. NTD's Gina Marie from Strong Mind and Body highlights five of them. Honey is known as liquid gold when it comes to health. Its unique healing properties can enhance beauty, strengthen immunity, relieve coughs and pain, lubricate the throat, reduce inflammation and heal wounds. Here are five of its top health benefits starting with number one, how honey fights inflammation and aging. Research suggests that honey contains highly effective antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. Regular consumption of honey can reduce fatigue and help to maintain vitality. It also moisturizes the skin, helps to prevent wrinkles and promotes a youthful appearance. Number two, honey soothes coughs and relieves sore throats. At times, a persistent cough can affect sleep and work quality. Doctors sometimes prescribe steroids to treat persistent coughs, but such drugs can have side effects and are unsuitable for long-term use. Honey, on the other hand, can be used as a safe and effective cough syrup. It can lubricate the throat, reduce irritation and suppress inflammation. It's as simple as adding honey to warm water. Number three, honey soothes stomach pain and reduces inflammation. Many people experience stomach discomfort. This includes stomach aches, excessive acidity, or gastric ulcers. Drinking honey water can help to heal the stomach. It can also alleviate constipation and aid in detoxification. Number four, honey mitigates chemotherapy side effects. Honey can help to minimize the side effects of chemotherapy. Chemotherapy can harm the body significantly. Applying honey topically can reduce the severity and pain of oral mucositis. Drinking honey water can prevent a continual decrease in white blood cell count and boost resistance. Number five, honey is a natural wound healer. Honey can also be used topically. It has antibacterial, antiviral, and anti-inflammatory properties. These expedite wound healing, reduce infection, and prevent scarring. Whether it's a burn, scald, abrasion, cut, or oral mucositis, honey can be used for treatment. Simply apply honey to the affected area twice daily and cover it with a gauze. The curtain has lifted on the New York City Marathon. Crashing world records have brought supersized attention for the grueling distance event. The Sunday Kenyan former world record holder Bridget Kosegi 
will make her Big Apple debut after five previous major wins, while her fellow Kenyan Sharon Locati mounts a New York title defense. I come here to run on my own base and on my own ship. So me, I'm feeling good to be with them so that uh, uh, it, will, it will be the strong, the feel will be very strong when you are together with them. It's been a life changing. I, it was a great experience and I'm really excited that I'm back here again and you know, looking forward for Sunday. When I look at the people that are seated ahead of me, I'm like, holy moly, you know, like their accolades are light years ahead of mine. Um, but that's the beauty of New York, you know, is that you can kind of put all of that aside and anything can happen on the day. Among the athletes, Paris Gipchiri made history when she broke the tape in Central Park months after picking up Olympic gold in Tokyo. On the men's side, a Tokyo Olympic silver medalist from the Netherlands and the 2022 world champion from Ethiopia are among the highlights. The marathon kicks off this coming Sunday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. It will cover a total distance of 26.2 miles through all five boroughs of New York City. Fascinating. So, you know, the race starts actually with a professional wheelchair division. Um, the wheelchair marathon record is faster than the full body running. Okay, no, I didn't know that. Um, wow, there's a lot to know about this actually. Right. The, yeah, there are so many records. <laughs> Even on the, 8th of on the 8th of October, two hours and 35 milliseconds. As, as the men's record. Incredible. You know, as far as the, the full body running, um, the comparison between the full body running and the, and the wheelchair division, the wheelchair uh, time is, the fastest time is an hour and, 20, 22, and 22 minutes, and the full body is two hours. Okay, wow. I mean, I've never been one to really follow um, these kinds of races, but looks like there's actually quite a lot of interesting things going on. Yeah, it's pretty it. incredible. It's that time of year again, Steph. What time of year? It's daylight savings time. Oh, great, great. So are we losing or gaining an hour? Fall back, spring forward. So you can um, set your clocks back an hour, right? So if it's 7 p.m., okay. move your clock back to 6 p.m. and you get an hour more sleep. Okay, nice. Well, I do like to sleep in, but I do, I've heard reports that actually people find it very difficult to adjust and there's even been an increase in, you know, heart attacks and even, uh, you know, car crashes and things like that at yeah. these points of time. I've often thought about that. But there's something kind of nice about in springtime when um, you, you know, you get a little extra more sleep and you get that extra energy, the, the, the sorry, the light, you get less sleep, but the, you get more daylight. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, you have this kind of boost to the rest of your day. Absolutely. Um, I don't mind getting more sleep, as I said. <laughs> but, uh, but I do know that there's a poll saying that over 70% of Americans prefer to do away with saving, daylight savings time. So, and there is a, has been a push. Uh, there are actually seven bills currently pending in the New York um, that address daylight savings. So oh. we'll see if that actually goes through. It would but certainly make it convenient for any businesses dealing with China from the U.S., you know. Oh, okay, that's an interesting perspective, yeah. 
Right. All right. All right, that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with any news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories on Monday. Thank you.